0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14. We're in a series of messages that is taking us through uh, 1 Samuel. Chapter 14 is where we are today, and here is the key concept. It's actually a verse from the book of Proverbs. It says this, "'The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice.'" In the Scripture that we'll encounter today, we see uh, the lack of listening to advice and pausing before taking action. But our passage will, will take us to a scene of ancient warfare. But what we'll read about is something very modern. In fact, we're going to read about something that you see on your news every evening as we see the scenes of the war that is going on in Ukraine. We hear about occupying forces. We hear about outposts of soldiers, and invasion, and recently about a panicked retreat on the part of the occupiers, a sudden fear overtaking them so that they flee, leaving belongings and weapons and ammunition behind. I want you to know that none of this is new in the annals of warfare. We'll see it in the ancient times in our passage, just like we see it on our newscasts. And today in our passage, we're going to see two competing aspects of human nature. We will witness great courage and we will observe foolish choices being made in a moment of pride. And we'll learn how important it is to bathe our decisions in prayer and seek wise counsel before we make pronouncements, before we make choices, especially if... We will influence others with those choices. And so our setting uh, begins in the midst of the ongoing war between Israel and the Philistines. We're actually picking up right where we left off two weeks ago uh, when we noticed that the Philistines and the Israelites have mustered for war. They've dug into their positions and with a battle looming, and we begin our, our lesson today noticing that Prince Jonathan, Saul, King Saul's son, he is on the front lines. And he wakes up one day feeling very confident. Have you ever had a day when you just felt invincible? when it seemed like the way that the sun was shining or the way that the air smelled or the cool of the breeze on your face, something invigorated you to the point where you, fact, where you felt that today is the day I can t- tackle my problems. Today is my day. I can get things done today. Now, that's the way that Jonathan felt when he woke up on the morning that we'll notice. And on this particular day, Jonathan, the prince of Israel, and one other man, his armor bearer, sneak over to the camp of the Philistines, or at least one of the outposts of their camp. And we'll pick up the reading in verse 8. So go ahead and find chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, verse 8, and it says this. Jonathan said, Come then. We will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And so Jonathan and his attendant come out of hiding. They show themselves to the enemy and they are asked Come on up. Now what that, that means is come on up and we will teach you guys a lesson. But it's the Philistines who learn a lesson. These two men attack and are victorious over 20 men in hand-to-hand combat. And this conflict takes place in an area of about an acre. The Scripture is specifically showing us that. In an acre of space, this battle takes place. That is going to be important a little bit later uh, in, in our lesson. But we see God giving these two men the victory over the 20. This was a divine moment for Jonathan and his armor-bearer. Against all odds, against the difficulty, they were victorious. This past week I was reading in one of my devotional booklets, and uh, the author said, said this. I thought, it was, uh, I thought it was well said. He said, Difficulty is the very atmosphere of the miraculous. It is a miracle in its first stage. And they faced this difficulty with courage. Against all odds, they went and they seized the moment. They go for victory. And I want you to emphasize the word go because we use the word go a lot around here at Quail Lakes Baptist Church. We use it for our go projects where we seek to bless our city. We use it for our go lift every church uh, emphasis where we seek to bless another congregation and further their witness in their neighborhood. We have t-shirts with the theme people who go grow because we believe that as we go and serve the Lord we grow in our faith we grow in our relationships with one another. All of that is on purpose because I believe the primary word from God to his people is not stop, it is go. I believe that lives of stable inertia keep us safe, but they do not give us victory. If you want victory, you have to courageously go. God's primary word is go, go forward in my purpose, go forward aligned with my will. And Jonathan woke up this particular morning and sensed this is the day to go. This is a go moment. He's no longer comfortable with the status quo. Today is the day for courage. G.K. Chesterton writes about this kind of courage when a soldier is on the front line. He says this, a soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, he needs to combine a strong desire to live with a strange carelessness about dying. And Jonathan shows us that. He has a desire to live and be victorious, but he's careless a little bit about his own life because he recognizes he's in God's hands. And this was the moment God gave them a victory. And not only the victory over the 20, then the Scripture tells us that God sent a panic on the rest of the Philistine army. Because remember, this skirmish between the 2 and the 20 took place over an area of about an acre uh, large. And, And in that acre... Uh, as they were fighting, the Philistine armies were looking. They were watching. This did not happen in secret. And at first, I think they must have thought, well, surely our soldiers are, are going to be victorious over these two. So nobody got involved. But then, little by little, they see that the Israelites are the ones who are the victors, and a panic begins to grow up in the observing Philistines, a horror. And they fear for their own lives, and they retreat. Pick up the reading in verse 15. It says this, Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's outlooks at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Verse 18, Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. And at that time it was with the Israelites. And while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their sword. swords. Now seeing the Philistine army in panic and on the run, did something to the Israelite army. It made them suddenly brave. All of a sudden, they were ready to fight. Remember, a few weeks ago, they were hiding in cisterns and pits. No longer. They see the Philistine army in in panic stages, fighting each other, and they say to themselves, this is the best battle ever. The enemy is fighting themselves. What a day. But it's really not a story about a lucky day. It's a story about what can be accomplished when we are empowered by God and when God is working in and through us. This is the story of how the actions of a few can make a difference when God is working in us. With God on our side, it tells us that we are the majority no matter how many we are or how inadequate we may feel, God is always able. And here, God had a plan. He sent a panic among the Philistines. That invading army all of a sudden is melting away. Picture your own struggles, the issues that you face. It may seem like these are an invading army in your life, an army that we often retreat from, an army we surrender ground to over and over again because it looks like we're never going to get past it. We're never going to get over it. It seems so overwhelming. Never forget that God can give us courage and with Him we conquer. It is in His power we get the victory. It is God who routs the enemy. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. But in the midst of this God-sent victory, we see the seeds of destruction in in Saul's inner life. Because did you notice what he said in verse 18? He sees the battle is, is about to be joined. His soldiers are going out into the struggle and he turns to the priest and he says, Bring out the Ark of God. Now, Yogi Berra would say, this is deja vu all over again, right? We did this already. Remember back in chapter 4, Hophni and Phinehas, the, the corrupt sons of Eli, they bring the Ark of the Covenant out into the battlefield as if it was some sort of good luck charm, uh, guaranteeing that they will get the victory. And And what they got was... Their own deaths, Eli's deaths, the the battle was lost and the Ark of Covenant was captured. Remember that. And now Saul is ready to repeat that again. And the the priest that he asks, bring out the Ark of God. That priest is the grandson of Phineas. The one who died when they previously did that. Surely this priest is going to realize this is a bad idea. We wonder how he's going to respond to this. But before he can really get his head around what Saul is asking him, uh, Saul relents in terms of that because it's, he sees that the Philistine army is in such bad state. Well, we don't need the ark. Well, it was a good thing he, he changed his mind because the ark of God is not a rabbit's foot to be brought out to, to uh, uh, like a good luck charm, but it foreshadows Saul's tendency to make bad choices, and he's going to make a whopper of a bad choice in a moment. Saul seeks to capitalize on the retreat, and as he seeks to capitalize on the retreat of the Philistines, he also is seeking to elevate himself, to put himself in the driver's seat and and take credit, so to speak, for the victory that he thinks is going to come. And with that mindset, he makes a rule that is totally foolish, And it's nothing but an exertion of his own pride to show that he is able to make men do his will. And it's found in verse 24. It says this, "'Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, "'before I have avenged myself on my enemies,' So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. And when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. You notice how Saul is personalizing this struggle? Before I avenge myself on my enemies, Saul is thinking it's all up to him. And he's the center of attention. And so he declares, listen, no one eats before we get the victory. It's a foolish rule. It's a silly show of power, flaunting his ability there to give orders. It was foolish because his men needed strength to engage the battle. They needed strength to fight. Very often we encounter around us laws and rules and regulations that we wonder about. I wonder, what was the mindset that caused these laws to be passed? Robert Pelton is an author. He published a book entitled "Loony Laws, and he, he tabulates some of the laws that are on the books today. For instance, he notes that in Kansas, it's illegal to catch fish with your bare hands. Don't know why, but that's the law. In Pocatello, Idaho, a law passed in 1912 that says, quote, It is illegal to carry a concealed weapon unless it is open to public view. Then it's not a concealed weapon. How about this law? This is, uh, In Kentucky, uh, it says, No female shall uh, shall appear in a bathing suit on a highway within the state unless she is escorted by at least two officers or unless she is armed with a club. That law was amended. He didn't give give the dates of the amendment, but listen to the, the amendment to that law. The provision of this statute shall not apply to females weighing less than 90 pounds or exceeding 200 pounds nor shall it apply to female horses (laughs) what so you're telling me that the law specifically allows female horses to wear bathing suits on highways in Kentucky Wow there there's a there's a website called stupidlaws.com and uh, on it they give some of California's stupid laws Do you want to hear a few there's a statute in Chico that declares it illegal to detonate a nuclear device inside the city limits. Now, that's a good law, right? It sounds, sounds reasonable to me. You know what the fine is for detonating a nuclear device? $500. Seems a little low, don't you think? Somebody's saying, well, I got $600. I can I can do that. In San Francisco, it is illegal to pile horse manure more than six feet high on a street corner. That's a good law, you know. I think that's a good one. See, usually these laws are sparked by some incident. Something happened and somebody said there ought to be a law against this. You can imagine like a manure cave-in or something in San Francisco. There ought to be a law against this. But Saul's law is sparked by nothing but pride. He he let the fight with the Philistines get so personal that he doesn't see that this is God's battle and God is the one who's giving him the advantage. It's all about Saul at this point and, and he claiming the victory for himself. My vengeance is what I want. And so it brings weakness to the soldiers. Just when they need strength, the army in pursuit of the Philistines, and there was a, a great opportunity for victory, but they're unable to get their strength. And you can understand Paul, uh, Saul's reasoning. Maybe he's saying to himself, well, if they stop to eat, it's going to take too much time. But notice what God has provided. He's provided, in a sense, fast food, honey, right there, able to be scooped up and from it gain energy. But the soldiers are afraid The commander-in-chief has given uh, given an order, and so they do not gain the strength that they need. But it also, if you read further into the chapter, it brings wickedness. Because later in the struggle, after the initial battle has kind of died down, the soldiers are so ravenously hungry that they eat meat in a way that is unlawful because of the dietary laws of the Jews. They eat meat mixed with blood, in other words, raw. The, the, the initial wave of the battle has subsided, and in verse 32, this is what it says. They pounced on the plunder, and taking cheap cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. The men are exhausted, the men are ravenous, so much so that they kill and eat. What you need to notice here is that because they are obeying Saul's foolish law, they come to the point of desperation where they're willing to disobey God's law. Because at that moment, Saul seems more threatening than the Almighty. All of this happens in the midst of this battle. So where's Jonathan throughout all of this? Go back to his situation and we'll learn that Jonathan because he was removed from these, these particular uh, orders and this particular mobilization in a different area, he's blissfully unaware that his father has made this law. Look at verse 27 of chapter 14. It says, But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath. So he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Jonathan isn't aware of this law that Saul has passed. And so he sees common sense here. Might as well get refreshed a little bit with this honey. And he eats the honey that he finds, that the other soldiers are passing up. And in that moment in time, at that point in the battle, that struggle of the day, it seems okay. Right? It seems no harm, no foul, because this was a foolish law in the first place. Now fast forward to that evening. The, the dark is beginning to settle in. And Saul wonders if they shouldn't continue the battle by night and take advantage of the darkness and continue to chase down the Philistines. By now, the soldiers have been reprimanded for eating the meat that contained the blood. They have cooked and they have eaten a proper meal and they have become rested. And it's generally agreed upon among the the commanders that they will return to battle. Uh, Look at verse 36. And Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn, and let us not leave one of them alive. Saul is intending to muster his soldiers once again for a continuation of the battle when the priest says, Hold on, before we do that, let's inquire of the Lord. And they do that, but no guidance seems to come. And it leads Saul to believe, well, there must be some violation among us. There must be some sin in the camp, so to speak, that that God is not declaring His will for us and and, uh, has gotten God's attention. Look at verse 38. says this, Saul therefore said, Come here, all you who are leaders of the army. Let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if it lies with my own son, uh, Jonathan, he must die. But not, not one of the men said a word. You see, even though it was a foolish law, it was the command from the commander-in-chief. And these were soldiers. And so they they kept that command. But nobody wants to get Jonathan in trouble. They all realized that he was the one who had, had eaten. And they begin to cast lots to seek direction from the Lord. Now, casting lots is similar to rolling dice, They're using special objects kept by the high priest. And they cast the lot to get a yes-no answer. They, they get ask a series of questions. Now, we are not to make decisions that way today. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have the completed Word of God with His principles for life, as well as the Spirit to guide us. We have one another to gain good counsel from godly friends and family. But through this ancient process of casting lots, over time, Jonathan is indicated as being the one who violated the command. And Saul is willing to kill his own son because at this moment, he is more committed to his foolish rule, to saving face, to not having to backtrack against his own word. He's more committed to that than to the life of his son. He's ready to kill his son in verse 44. But in verse 45, the soldiers step in. Notice with me. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die, he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Jonathan is spared. Then they all go home, and the battle is abandoned. The great victory that might have been does not really fulfill itself. Jonathan, working in the Lord's power, had rescued Israel from what looked like an imminent disaster. And now the men of Israel are standing up to Saul, and they rescue Jonathan. But in this, in this story, we see some lessons. First of all, we see, again, the moral failure and the twisted reasoning that's developing in the mind of King Saul. And it sets up the scene soon for David to come onto the stage. And the dynasty moves away from Saul to David. But we see lessons that we can apply to ourselves. And the first one is that as we go in God's strength, we feel His blessing. We know His victory. And we must... Go in His strength, not our own. We see the danger here of rash decisions made without prayer and without consultation. Maybe you're on the brink of making a decision. Maybe you're on the brink of a choice that, that will send your life in one direction or another or those around you in one direction or another. Choices need to be made, bathed in prayer discussed together with those we love and those who know the Lord uh, Jesus as Savior, other believers who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who can help us make make decisions. Decisions need to be made based on the principles of the Word of God. If the Word of God teaches us specifically on the subject of our choice, that's the way to follow. We don't We don't need really to question because God gives us direction. But our choices must not be made in haste with an attitude of, making ourselves look better. Secondly, the the danger of blind legalism is seen here, following human rules. Rejecting legalism doesn't mean that we reject the Bible's standards or the Bible's laws or direction for us. No, it means that we don't seek to improve on the laws that we see in the Scripture by adding humanly concocted rules thinking that by adding those rules on top of what we see here, we are becoming more and more religious or holy or whatever. I love C.S. Lewis's line about this. When talking about human-made laws passed on top of the Scripture, he says this, there is no sense in trying to be more religious than God. I keep that in mind. Here we have a human rule. Saul did not need to burden his soldiers with that rule. And we need to be careful not to do that. We also learn that there's an ultimate responsibility of leaders. And the ultimate responsibility of leaders are to be followers, followers of God. At the end of the day, thankfully, the men stepped in and stopped Saul from running amok, killing his own son. But leaders who go wrong do great damage. One man put it in this way, this comparison, he says, a train that jumps the rails would do very little damage if it stopped immediately, but its momentum carries it forward often with devastating results. So it is with a man or woman of influence who jumps off the right course. If they are not caused to stop, they hurt many others. And we all have influence somewhere. We all have influence over some people. We must... Uh, carry that, uh, we all have that tendency, I guess, to jump off the rails once in a while, but we need to be thankful, therefore, for those in our lives who will ask us questions, for those in our lives who will give us counsel, who will ask us to pause and say, let's pray so that we don't lead others astray. Back to our opening sentence A wise person listens to advice and seeks prayerful counsel as we make choices. I pray that we are those wise persons. Let's pray together. For a moment, I encourage you just to consider the choices that you face, the decisions that may be just near on the horizon. Lord, all of us are in the process of making some choices, making decisions, and Lord, we we bathe those choices in prayer. We beg You to lead us as those choices become real. We ask, Lord, that You bring people into our lives who give us godly counsel so that we have that reassurance, that, that sense of affirmation that You are in the choices that we are making. But most of all, we pray for Your presence. We pray for Your leadership. And we pray that we would be the people who look to You first and operate in in Your strength. Help us, Lord, in these ways. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.